Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast in collaboration with the Conservative Yeshiva in Jerusalem. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about the Conservative Yeshiva, please visit conservativeyeshiva.org. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Daily Doff Differently. I'm Rabbi Hilary Chorney. And I am Rabbi Daniel Chorney. Today we'll be discussing Daf Mem Bet, page 42 of Tractate Nadarim, dealing with vowels. Our Daf begins with the fifth Mishnah of chapter 4. This Mishnah examines what happens when a person makes a vow before or on the seventh year, Hashvi'it, which we must recall refers to the Shemitah year. It is important to keep in mind that from the Torah, all produce that grows in the land of Israel on the seventh year is considered ownerless, which will have an effect on a person's ability to make a vow concerning produce. At the same time, we need to remember the fundamental difference between a person who is forbidden by vow from all enjoyment of another's property, a mudar hana'a, and a person who is forbidden by vow from only matters of food, from the chapter's first Mishnah. The former, a mudar hana'a, is forbidden even to set foot on the property that is the object of the vow, and the latter is allowed to set foot and even borrow and use items so long as they do not partake of any food or food processing appliances. Our Mishnah begins with the case of a mudar hana'a, a person who is forbidden by vow to enjoy any of his fellow's property prior to the seventh year. Once the seventh year has begun, this person is neither allowed to enter his fellow's field nor to eat matot, fruits that grow on branches hanging over the edge of the property. And it goes without saying that this person was also forbidden to enter his fellow's field or eat notot when he made the vow prior to the seventh year. But if the person made her vow on the seventh year, the Mishnah rules differently. This person is still not allowed to enter her fellow's field, but may eat notot, presumably because the fruits growing in the field are ownerless prior to the vow being made. And this raises an interesting question, which the Gemara will address on Amud Bet, side B. Is the mudar hana'a in this case allowed to eat the fruit in the field that is not hanging over the edge if someone were to bring it out to her? Or does the owner of the field retain a certain degree of ownership over the fruit that continues to make it forbidden to the mudar? Before we continue with the Mishnah, let's turn to the end of the sugya on side B, at the colon eight lines from the bottom. After citing the piska from our Mishnah about the mudar hana'abashvi'it, the Gemara asks why the Mishnah specifies the notot as being permissible for this individual to eat. The Gemara rhetorically asks, is it because the fruits are ownerless? And then raises the difficulty, the land is also ownerless. The Perush Harosh explains that the land is indeed ownerless on the seventh year for the purposes of allowing people to, quote, lawfully trespass, end quote, to harvest fruit. Therefore, it would seem the Mishnah does not have to specify that a mudar hana'abashvi'it can have notot because it would seem he also can have fruit growing in the field and perhaps even may go into the field to harvest that fruit himself. However, we have two Amoraim responding to this objection. 
Ulla, who is a second-generation Eretz Yisraeli Amora, narrows the objection by saying that the field is only ownerless as far as the trees on its edges. That is to say, as far as is needed for a person to be able to harvest fruit for personal consumption. Beyond that purpose, the field continues to be owned. So for Ulla, the Mudar Hana'a Bashvi'it is still forbidden to enter the field and consume fruit that is not on the edges from the Torah, Midor Raita. Rabbi Shimon ben Eliakim, also a second-generation Eretz Israeli Amora, disagrees with Ula, asserting that, while in principle the Mudar Hana'a may even enter the field to harvest fruit, because the field is only ownerless for the purpose of gathering the fruit, the rabbis do not permit her to do so, lest she remain in the field after eating her fill, at which point it reverts to a state of ownership. Rabbi Shimon ben Eliakim views the language of Notot as reflecting a rabbinic injunction, a gezera, not to allow a mudar hana'a bashvi'it to eat produce within the field lest he come to transgress. While neither clearly responds to the question of whether or not such a mudar may eat fruit that is brought out to him from the field, one might be somewhat secure in saying that Rabbi Shimon ben Eliakim would permit it because there's no risk of the mudar remaining in the field which, in his view, is the purpose of the Gezerah in the first place. Now let's turn back to our Mishnah. Having outlined what happens with a Mudar Hana'a before and during the seventh year, the Mishnah proceeds to explain what happens to someone who merely is forbidden by vow from partaking of his fellow's foodstuffs. Nadar Heimenu Ma'achal If the vow was made prior to the seventh year, then when the seventh year arrives, that person may enter his fellow's field, but may not eat any of the produce, both in the field and on the edges. If the vow is made on the seventh year, the person may continue to enter the field, and may continue to eat the produce, presumably because the produce is already ownerless by the time the vow is made. Note, however, the Mishnah says nothing about whether or not this person can continue to consume their fellow's produce after the seventh year ends, but it stands to reason that they may not because the produce then returns to a state of ownership. The Gemara begins by bringing two Mamrot that resemble the Mishnah and appear to disagree with each other. First, Rav and Shmuel, first-generation Babylonian Amoraim, bring a case where a person prohibits their fellow by means of a vow from partaking of certain assets, Nechasim Elu, which include a field. Basically, the outcomes of whether this vow takes place before or during the seventh year are identical to the Mishnah's formulation of the Mudar Hana'a. If before the seventh year, then the person may neither enter the field nor eat no toad on the seventh year. If it were made during the seventh year, the person may not enter the field, but may eat no toad on or during the seventh year. Then, the opinion is brought by Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish, who are second-generation Eretz Yisraeli Amoraim, which deals with a person who makes a similar prohibition by means of vows using the language nechasai, my possessions. These Amoraim assert that when the person made the vow prior to the seventh year, during which time the person may not enter the field nor eat no tote, once the seventh year arrives, that person can eat no tote. The Gemara then proceeds to examine why these pairs of Amoraim seem to disagree. First, it proposes the possibility that they disagree about whether or not 
a person who prohibits something within his or her own control, birshute, continues to prohibit that thing for themselves once it has left their control. If that is the basis of the disagreement, we would say that Rav and Shmuel believe a person does continue to prohibit the fruit for herself during the seventh year because she did it while the produce had an owner and was within her power, birshute, to prohibit. And we would say that Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish don't believe a person can do this, and so the seventh year releases them from the prohibition to eat of their fellow's produce because it no longer belongs to anyone. Immediately, the Gemara raises two objections to this explanation. First, it questions if anyone actually holds that a person cannot prohibit something that is in their control once it has left their control. If it is the case that such an opinion is held, then we can say that they are really disagreeing about the ability of the vague language of Nechassim Elu, these possessions, to bind someone on the seventh year, and even the ability of the more specific language of Nechassai, my possessions, to do so. In other words, the disagreement does not have to be about a person's ability to prohibit something in their possession once it has left their possession, if it could conceivably be about the effectiveness of particular vowel formulations. The second objection the Gemara raises to the proposed rationale is that we have a Mishnah in Baba Kama that seems to indicate that all agree a person can prohibit another from partaking of something they own even after they no longer own it. That source brings the case of a man who vows that his son may not derive enjoyment from his father's property. If he specifies that this vow applies to his property while he lives, and after he dies, the son cannot inherit the property even after his father passes away, and therefore no longer owns it. But the Gemara dismisses that Mishnah as proof by pointing out a distinction, chiluk, between the cases. In the case of the father and the son, the father is explicitly vowing that his son may not partake of his property after his death. Meanwhile, in the case of our sugya, one can maintain that an unqualified prohibition of this property, nechasim elu, or my property, nechasai, would not be upheld once that property leaves the person's possession on the seventh year. Having rejected that second challenge, the Gemara turns its attention back to the first. The Gemara asserts that all agree that the usage of this property, Nechasim Elu, is a perpetual prohibition that holds during the seventh year, but that the phrasing of my property, Nechasai, is the only case where Rabbi Yochanan and Reish Lakish disagree, saying that it does not continue the prohibition into the seventh year when the property leaves the person's possession. It then challenges this assertion based upon the third Mishnah in chapter 5, which indicates that similarly imprecise language of possession, Beitecha, your house, and Sadecha, your field, that are parallel to Nechasai, my property, implies that the vow loses its effect once the ownership has changed. Accepting this refutation of the first proposed rationale for the disagreement, the Gemara concludes by saying that there is actually no disagreement between the pairs of Amoraim. They are merely stating two different cases that, were they to be asked about the case they were not describing, they would agree with the other pair's formulation. This concludes today's daf. 
Thank you for listening. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the open and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epichorus album One Bead, available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.